Let me start with a question. Have you ever done a jigsaw puzzle? A few people have. Have you ever painted a paint-by-numbers picture? You know, you have to fill in all the little numbers, and in the end it comes clear. Have you ever done one of those cross-stitch things where you have to put in, goodness knows how many thousand stitches, and in the end there's a picture? Have you ever built a model? <laughs> no. David Gibson is a Scottish minister, and he's an author of one of the best books on Ecclesiastes. The book's called Living Life Backward. He recalls going on a family holiday and taking with them a model called the Millennium Falcon. Now, the Millennium Falcon is a spaceship from the Star Wars films. It's usually flown by Han Solo and his hairy sidekick, Chewbacca. The model, when they opened the box, had 1,254 pieces. 1,254 pieces. And he gave it to his oldest son to build. I think somebody here may have even built this model. It's huge. It took the boy nine hours. Great tip for parents there who need something to occupy kids on holiday. Nine hours of painstaking care, pouring over the, the, the master plan and all the details of all the little parts, you know, all the little bits in, in the model, trying to make sure that every part was included and was integrated into the whole. Very difficult because most of the parts are gray. Now, if you've ever built a model, you know what this is like. The individual pieces don't look like much, and some of the parts look irrelevant. It's not at all clear why some bits are in the box, but you do need them all if you're going to make the model, and in the end, it all comes together, hopefully. Now, David Gibson describes the growing excitement as his young son saw the work of his hands all coming together to create something spectacular. And he comments, as I watched my son work, it occurred to me how life is like a construction exercise. Our lives are made up of so many different pieces, people, events, circumstances, times, places, all being locked together to make up our individual story. Sometimes we don't see the significance of a tiny piece of the story until much later. Often there seems to be a brick missing, and it's hard to keep going without it. Or there's tremendous joy and satisfaction as a particular piece finally clicks into place and crowns part of our life project. You know what he's saying? In the famous words of Forrest Gump, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. We don't know what's going to happen in our lives at any given moment or any day. We usually don't know how it all fits together. We don't have the master plan. Only God does. And there are times where we doubt that it all fits together at all, don't you? We can't see the sense of things. One friend said to me recently, I feel like for the last few years I've been inside a washing machine. It's going round and round. Last year, the English author Kazuo Ishiguro won the Nobel Prize for Literature. The committee said that the award was based on his contributions as a writer who has uncovered the abyss beneath our illusory sense of connection with the world. Let me say that again. He has uncovered the abyss beneath our illusory sense of connection with the world. Fascinating. This is from the Nobel Academy. I don't know if any of these people were Christians. They say that we have a sense of connection with the world, but it's an illusion. 
It's imaginary. And underneath that illusion is an abyss. An abyss is a chasm so dark and deep that it looks bottomless. That's how thin our lives are. Now that is exactly what the Bible book of Ecclesiastes is doing. It is uncovering the abyss underneath all our illusions about life. And it is doing so not to depress us, but so that we might uncover the real purpose of life. So far, the writer has set out to explore what he calls life under the sun. That phrase means life without God in the picture. No God above. Remember John Lennon? Imagine there's no heaven, no God above. Life under the sun. Take God out of the picture. What have you got left? Can you find ultimate meaning without him? Can you find lasting satisfaction? Can you find an enduring purpose without God? Now, we might call this the secular humanist project. This is what makes Ecclesiastes, a very old book, actually a book for our times. And we've had so much response to the series so far. So the writer, if you may recall, tells us how he's explored the various things that we look to for meaning. The things we look to for satisfaction and purpose. He's, he's, he's delved into wisdom and education. He's crammed his head with knowledge. He's explored learning as much as he can. He's, he's gone wild with pleasure. He's been a fun seeker, a thrill seeker. He's then turned himself to apply himself to great projects, to make a mark in the world, building grand houses and gardens and employing people. He's devoted himself to hard work, to his career, to going as far as he can. And these are all the things that we tend to think, if only I had X, or if only I was doing X, then I could make life work. And he's tested them all to the limit, pleasure, projects, work, wisdom, education. He's tested them all, and it's like he's writing back his report, and he says, okay, everyone, I've tried it, and it didn't work. It didn't make life work. I've discovered that even the very good things in life are hevel, Hevel, it's a Hebrew word. We don't have an exact equivalent in English. Hevel mean, literally means breath. Breath, like the, the breath that comes out of your mouth on a cold winter's morning. But inside that word are three, real, three meanings or three layers. Breath is temporary. You breathe out, you see it, and it's gone. Breath is also empty. It's futile. There's something kind of purposeless about it. And also, breath is uncontrollable. Try grasping the wind, you never can. And even if you did, you'd find you had nothing in your hand. So at the end of chapter 2, he's, he's surveyed all these things, and he's concluded, do you know what? At the end of the day, we actually just need to learn how to enjoy life. Wow! This is in the Bible. God says it's okay to enjoy life. You need, you need to learn to enjoy the simple things, he says. Food, drink, Try and find some enjoyment in your work. You learn to enjoy them, he says, as gifts from God. You've got to stop striving to invest your life with some great significance and learn to accept the simple things you have, have you've been given to you as gifts from the Creator. But the story isn't over yet because we struggle to accept life as it is, don't we? We struggle to accept life as it is, don't you? Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer out loud. Will you be honest with yourself? Are you frustrated? Are you frustrated with how life is turning out? 
you find yourself sometimes boiling over with anger because it's just so frustrating are you disappointed you've reached a point where actually your dreams are not coming true and they never will you thought things would turn out better than this are you anxious do you worry a lot do you find yourself biting your nails or doing things that show you're worrying underneath do you lose sleep you haven't got peace of mind because you're so anxious are you sad and I just don't I don't mean just temporarily but I mean carrying some deep sorrow in your heart sometimes it seems to well up and overwhelm you are you afraid deep down are you driven by fear maybe fear that you're not good enough fear that you're not that good at your job and people will find you out one day it's called imposter syndrome fear that people don't really like you or if they really knew you they wouldn't fear that you are actually a nobody be honest I must have got you with one of those things frustrated disappointed anxious sad afraid if you've got all five come and see me straight after the service we struggle don't we to accept life as it is and so we yearn for it to be different and so we're never satisfied we are restless spirits we struggle to accept life as it is because we can't make sense of it and so we turn out frustrated disappointed anxious sad or afraid these things capture us and once they've got you you find they hold you in their grip now chapter three of ecclesiastes faces right up to all of this and he does it to help us out of the quicksand quicksand i've never seen it and i hope i never will but apparently once you've started going into the quicksand the more you struggle the quicker you go down you might feel this morning i'm, I'm up to my knees you might be up to your neck you might feel like you're actually going under why is my life like this listen you've got to listen to ecclesiastes this is ancient wisdom more than 2,000 years old and what he's saying there's nothing new under the sun what you are going through people have been going through for centuries for millennia only what you find in this book you won't get self-help tips and you won't get advice on self-acceptance but you'll get a radical message and here I'm going to tell you the main point of the sermon and the main point of this passage and then we spend a bit of time unpacking it so here's the main point okay the sovereign God set the times and seasons so that people will stand in awe before him the sovereign God the sovereign set the times and the seasons so that people will stand in awe before him that is the key to living well is to understand that to embrace it to live by it to make it real to your heart to get that message and make it, let it change you there's a sovereign God he's appointed all the times and seasons and he's done it so that I will learn to revere him and that'll put life to rights so I just have two points today one sobered by the times and seasons sobered by the times and seasons and two freed by the fear of the Lord sobered by the times and seasons verses one to eight this is a poem and this poem is a masterpiece of what they call the wisdom literature here it is again there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens a time to be born and a time to die a time to plant and a time to uproot a time to kill and a time to heal a time to tear down 
and a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Notice in verse 1, this is life under heaven. Every activity under the heavens, that's life in the observable world, the human world, life as we experience it. Verses 2 to 8, notice how this poem moves back and forth between the desirable aspects of life and the undesirable ones. But it's not doing this to tell you how to change your luck. What he's doing is forcing us to recognize that this is how it is. This is how it always is. And it always has been. Now this poem has 14 pairs. A time for this and a time for that. That's two times seven. Okay, 14. Now seven is the Hebrew number for completeness. For perfection you know at the beginning of the bible we're told how god created the world completed it perfect seven days seven's the number of completeness so the author here with his two times seven is emphatically showing us that this is completely what it's like for human beings it's the complete range of different times that human beings may encounter in their lifetime and really it's all in here isn't it love and hate being born and dying planting, uprooting, mourning, dancing, laughing, crying. It's all in there. There's a literary device called a merism. And a merism is where you name two things, but what you're really implying is everything that comes in between them. So we would use it in an expression like, I hunted high and low for those car keys. High and low, it means I hunted everywhere. Or I gave that job my heart and soul. It means I gave it everything. And what we've got here is a a load of these pairs that show us everything in between. And the first pair makes it very clear. It's about the whole of life, from the cradle to the grave, birth and death. These are the things that mark the extreme limits of human existence. And you have no control over them, do you, friends? You had no control over the day you were born. You had no control over it. And I hope you have no control over the day you die. What do we learn from this poem? Verse 3, destruction and killing are a part of life in this world and they cannot be avoided. Of course, we prefer the healing and the building, but death is now a central fact of life. There will be a time to kill. Verse 4 says that both sorrow and joy are a part of life. We can't seem to have one without the other. Verse 5 gives us this unusual image, scattering stones. What's that about? Now, the scholars differ on this, but it seems likely that it refers to the wartime practice of throwing stones over a field to make it unworkable. And then in the peacetime, when peace is restored, the farmers have to go out and pick all the stones back up so they can work the fields again. Now, if that is the case, then this is the seventh line, and it parallels with the 14th line, which is about war and peace, giving us a nice structure within the poem. Verse 6, what is this saying? A time to search and a time to give up? 
time to keep and a time to throw away. It's saying this, nothing in this world is ours forever. Nothing in this world is ours forever. Even Axel Rose was inspired to poetry by this thought. Axel Rose, lead singer of Guns N' Roses, sang in the song November Rain, reflecting on the end of a relationship. Nothing lasts forever, and we both know hearts can change, and it's hard to hold a candle in the cold November rain. We've been through this such a long, long time, just trying to kill the pain. But love is always coming, and love is always going, and no one's really sure who's letting go today, walking away. Nothing in this world is ours forever. Verse 7 may be an image of funeral practices, tearing the clothes in grief and mourning, mending the clothes and moving on. It's definitely an image of things that are opposites, things that cancel each other out. Verse 8 was beloved of the protest singers in the 1960s, singing against the Vietnam War. But what is it saying? It's saying that perfect peace does not exist on earth. Perfect peace does not exist, whether at the level of personal feelings, love and hate, or at the level of geopolitical relations, conditions. War, peace, we cannot achieve and maintain perfect peace. So what is the impact of such a poem on your spirit? Do you find that there's a sort of gentle ebb and flow? Kesarasara, whatever will be, will be. Or do you find the back and forth of all this started to become oppressive? A bit like the tick-tock of a grandfather clock that never stops. I wonder if our emotional response to this poem is dictated by which season of life you happen to be in at the moment. If you're all loved up, the poem feels good. If your home has just been burned down by insurgents, the poem doesn't feel that great because you're in the time for war. But here's the point. This poem is written to sober us up. To sober us up, to wake us up, is showing us that our times are not in our hands to control. Did you notice the sequence? No, you didn't, because there isn't a sequence. These things just kind of come and go, and he sort of mixed them all together. It goes from negative to positive, to positive to negative, to negative to positive, negative, positive, positive, negative, and, and, and it's all just happening, and it comes and goes. You don't know where you're going to be. Like, as I said at the start of the service, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. You could roll a dice. You might get something great. You might have a personal problem. You might have a situational problem. What do we learn from this? We are not free. We all dance to a tune, but we don't write it. We're not free. And nothing we do has any permanence. It might be in a great season now, but it will end. The good news is if you're in a terrible season, that will end too. Nothing's permanent. Those are the two lessons. Look at the times and seasons of life. Reflect on them. And you will conclude that we are not free and we are not permanent. Sand in the wind. Pete Seeger was the sort of grandfather of American folk music. Wonderful man. Uh, I don't know where he stood with regard to Christian things. He seemed to know his Bible. And he had a great passion for social justice. He set this poem to music. And a few years later, by the way, he used the King James Version. King James Version of the Bible. A few years later, the birds, a British 
folk pop group covered the song and it became a surprise smash hit. It was number one in America and, and a big hit all around the world. And, and decades later, when he was about 90, Pete Seeger was interviewed about the song. You can see this interview on YouTube. It's fascinating. What he says, he, he, he pauses, a 90-year-old man, still very eloquent, and he pauses and, and he talks about this poem. And he says, what a poem that is. It is something worth considering that the world is full of opposites, all intertangled, the good and the bad tangling up all the time. And then he pauses, and then he says, nobody knows. And then he pauses again. God only knows and then he changes the subject <laughs> see this poem is there to sober us up about the times and seasons but it doesn't stop there if only dear Pete Seeger had carried on because verses 9 to 15 are the comment on the poem this poem was not written to be taken out of its context and read at funerals it was meant to generate in us a yearning for something more. And the writer doesn't just give us the poem, he gives us a paragraph, a commentary on the poem, here in verses 9 to 15. Let's just read that again to refresh our memory. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy, to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. But I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Remember that's the purpose of this? so that we would know the sovereign Lord who sets the times and seasons so that we would stand in awe of him. You see, like Ishiguro, this text has uncovered the abyss, the deep chasm underneath our illusions, our sense of control and connection over the world. But he's uncovered it in order to help us over it. Now, according to the Bible, the times and seasons of your life and of everybody's life are not accidental. They are providential. They were provided by an almighty God. The times and seasons of your life are not the product of an impersonal fate or an impersonal force or of chance. The times and seasons are the plan and purpose of a triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are the ones who've written the master plan and steered your life gently through every changing scene of life. And God has set this world up in this way for a reason. And the key to it all is verse 14. God does it so that people will fear him. He's done it all. He's done all of this. He set up the times and the seasons of our lives so that we'll fear him. Now, I want to talk about what fear means in a minute. But first of all, let's just think about the logic here. Verse 9. What do workers gain from their toil? We're all going to die. No matter whether you're the chief executive of Apple Computers, Tim Cook, I think the biggest company in the world, soon to reach a market cap of $1 trillion. 
I don't even know what a trillion is. How can a company be worth that much? The CEO of Apple Computers, Tim Cook, or whether you're the, the, the guy cleaning the offices at Apple at 5 a.m., both of you are going to end up in the same hole in the ground. Not the same hole, I know. The point is there's no permanence. So what good is your work to you? To you. Verse 10 probably should be translated a little bit differently. It says in our translation, I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. The language more literally would be, this is the business God has given the human race to be busy with. This is the business God has given the human race to be busy with. In other words, this is your assignment. It's what God's given you to get busy with. Verse 11, he's made everything beautiful in its time. This word beautiful can also be translated suitable or fitting. It means that everything has a place. Remember that model with 1,200 bits, all the little parts? Everything is beautiful, fitting, suitable in its place in time because God has instituted it. The difference is that God is the one with the master plan, not you. So we've been given this business. We know we're going to die. We're busying around like little bees doing our thing. We're all so busy. And yet, he says in verse 11, he has set eternity in our hearts. You see that? He's also set eternity in the human heart. There's something in your heart that yearns for more, isn't there? There's something in your heart that wants permanence. You want a home that can't be taken away from you. You know, we're all born outside of the Garden of Eden wanting to go back in. We don't know the way back. We can't find out. We can't make sense of life. We can't make sense of the seasons. But it's there inside us. We don't want to just accept that this life is all there is. We want something else. We want some permanence. We want freedom. We want joy. God has set eternity in your heart. He's put it in there. So that you don't settle for this life under the sun. This two-dimensional existence. That you yearn for a better country. A far country. The home where righteousness dwells. So, he says, he's done all of this so that we would learn to fear him. What does fear mean? In the Bible, fear means revere, honor, give great reverence to. And the Bible says that the way to live the good life, the way to live well, the way to wisdom is to have the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. Now, the word that's printed in our Bibles as Lord, usually in capital letters, actually is, is a name. It's the name Yahweh. It's a name that God specially gave to Moses when he met him and commissioned him to go and re lead the rescue of, of God's people, the Israelites. God said, my name is Yahweh. You shall tell the Israelites, this is my name. And Yahweh means, I am who I am. Or, I will be who I will be. It doesn't mean I will be whatever you want me to be. See, God is the only person in the universe who is completely self-determining. We're all contingent. 
It's a theological word. It means you depend on somebody else. Yesterday, one of my sons went out with his mate, got on the tram, went to the sweet shop, went to Greg's, the baker's, for his lunch, goofed around a bit, got the tram home, and came home with his mate. That whole trip was contingent on me giving him 10 pounds. It's contingent. And we're all contingent too. We're all contingent on God. But God isn't contingent on anyone. I am who I am. That means he's the only one who is in control. So do you know him? Do you know the God who is, who is the only one who's totally in control? You see, I think we all believe in sovereignty at some level. We believe that someone's in control. We believe that something is in control of our lives. But the key question is this. Will you acknowledge that the living God is the one in control or someone else? We're always going to give fear and honor and reverence to something. But give it to the wrong thing and it will eat you alive. Some of you probably fear your parents. Your parents' approval or disapproval, that's the ultimate thing. It might shape whether or not you become a Christian or continue as a Christian. Some of you probably fear money. You see your bank balance going down or going overdrawn, and you actually, you, your confidence drains away. You're afraid because money is controlling you. It's the most important thing, fear of money. Some of you may fear your boss. I hope the boss will approve of me and like me and give me a, a good review at the annual review meeting and maybe even a, a pay rise maybe some of you fear fate you think that this impersonal fate is going to decide your destiny that is terrifying some of you fear yourself because you think you're in charge and you know you're not big enough to hold the steering wheel see nothing else apart from the God of the Bible is big enough to hold you hold your life in his hands so back to those five questions at the start. Are you frustrated? Are you disappointed? Are you anxious? Are you afraid? Are you sad? Are you carrying sorrow around in your heart? Have the seasons of life brought you here today to read this text, to hear this sermon? You know, friends, this is taking us to only one place. We've got to learn to stand in awe of God. Give him your life and all your problems once again give him your life and all your problems cast it all on him again and ask yourself who's really in charge here Lord it's you I'm so sorry that I forgot that for a time the very old hymn says fear him ye saints and you will then have nothing else to fear make you his service your delight He'll make your wants his care. Fear him and you'll have nothing else to fear. Here's another old hymn. I love this. I don't think we could sing it these days. The tune's very twee. God holds the key of all unknown and I am glad. If other hands should hold the key or if he trusted it to me, I might be sad. I might be sad. God holds the key of all unknown. Now, I've written that sermon and I realize that I haven't mentioned Jesus. And the problem is, this isn't a synagogue. Right? This is a Christian church. I don't want to preach a sermon that could be preached in a synagogue equally well. So as I've been thinking about this, I, I, I've, I've landed on this point. When we think about fearing God, 
That means we should fear Jesus. Remember the meaning of fear is not be afraid of him, but to revere him and honor him and be in awe of him. And so I just want to end with a reading from the last book in the Bible, Revelation. And just to put in your mind's eye what the risen Lord Jesus is like in this incredible language of Revelation. Because this is the one we fear. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, the writer says. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. So he looks like a man. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And you know you can't look directly into the sun. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. That is the God we come to today. The risen Lord Jesus Christ. The one whose face shines like the brilliance of the sun. Who if you saw him, you'd fall down on your face in terror. And yet who would put his hand on you and say, do not be afraid. And if you looked at the hand, you'd still see the scars of his cross. Where he bought for you the freedom from all anxiety. The freedom from death. The freedom from punishment and judgment. And he made your life glorious and beautiful and gave you a promise a future that is as bright as the promises of God so friends let's not let life dominate us eh? God is the sovereign God has set the times and the seasons in such a way so that we might look at them and then realize he's the one in control I'm not in control and I need to stand in awe before him and bring all my anxiety and sadness and fear and disappointment and frustration and lay it all before him once again May God give us the grace to do that today and every day this week. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, risen Lord Jesus Christ, how amazing you are. We could not have known you if you hadn't revealed yourself to us in the Word. And Lord Jesus, we have come to know the living Word, you yourself, because you came and walked among us. Thank you for speaking to us. Forgive us, we're so prone to forget and let life and all its problems go over our heads like sorrows and sea billows. Lord, would you please do a work among us today? Please help us to walk with you, to know you better and to cast all our anxieties upon you because you care for us. We pray these things in the good and great name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.